0: started our journey uh, beginning with Genesis, and we're going to spend a couple of weeks on Genesis, and then we're going to hit every book uh, in the Bible every week for uh, uh, at least 66 weeks. So we're excited about that. I don't know how many of you have started your reading, but I hope that uh, you continue to do that and uh, be a part of the journey, be a part of the adventure of hearing from God, as uh, this year we are uh, people of the Word. We're always people of the book, but we are excited about uh, the journey that we're on as we start here in Genesis. Uh, Let me just again begin uh, with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for this uh, time together that we can explore what you have revealed to us, and I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. We want to apply this to our lives. We don't just want to hear it and, and accumulate knowledge, but we want to take and use it Uh, For your kingdom, for your glory. We want to be instruments in your hands. And so we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning and uh, cause us, Father, to to love you more, to follow you more closely, uh, to obey you more fully as we seek to be the kind of people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like many of you, I continue to fight the good fight of trying to lose weight. And uh, I've come to the conclusion that dieting is one of those ongoing battles that I will never win uh, this side of the grave, and so I feel like I'm on my way to heaven, one pound at a time. But I read some encouraging news recently that made me feel a little bit better about my chronic condition. It's actually a relief to know that the truth about those confl- conflicting medical reports that you sometimes read about. The article I read pointed out that the Japanese eat very little fat, and they suffer fewer heart attacks than Americans. The Mexicans eat a lot of fat and yet they suffer fewer heart attacks than Americans. The Japanese drink very little wine, they suffer fewer heart attacks than Americans. Uh, The Italians drink excessive amounts of wine and yet they have fewer heart attacks than Americans. The Germans, they drink a lot of beer and eat a lot of sausage and all kinds of fats and yet they apparently have fewer heart attacks than Americans and so what's the conclusion? Eat and drink whatever you want, the article says. Apparently, English, speaking English, is what kills you. So, (laughs) it is obvious that there are some things, basically, about ourselves that we cannot do really anything about. That no matter how hard we try, no matter how good our intentions, no matter how much effort we put out, some issues, some problems are so ingrained within us, uh, there's not a whole lot, lot we can do. About our situation in fact at the very foundational core uh, of every issue that we face and every problem that we encounter is that little three-letter word sin back when we were children most of us probably uh, knew that little nursery rhyme that went something like this Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall Humpty Dumpty had a great fall and all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty together again. Well, here in Genesis chapter 3, uh, we are reminded of one who sat on the wall of innocence and a perfect relationship with God. He had it made. And yet this individual had a great fall, and uh, no one was able to deliver him. No one, except that is, for, except Christ. So, so who was this ancient Humpty Dumpty? Uh, his name was Adam. And what happened at the very beginning with Adam has deeply affected, eternally impacted each and every one of us. And it explains why this world is so messed up. One author points out you can read any online news. And when you start reading through it, you're going to find in the international section, terrorism, war, and genocide. In the national section, you'll find political payoffs, lies, and scams. In the local section, you'll find rapes, abuses, murder, and arson. If you go through the business section, you'll see scandals, fraud, embezzlement. In the sports section, drug use, illegal gambling, and adultery. And in the entertainment section, well, you're going to find just about as many scandals and sins as you can possibly imagine. No rational person today can deny the fact that evil, real evil, does exist in our world. Now, how did the world get so messed up? The reason is that we've all sinned. And when we sin, we introduce sin into the world that we live in. Sin is defined as any attitude, any action against God. So where did all this sin begin? Well, as we saw in the video, it started with that very first couple, Adam and Eve, back in the garden. And here in Genesis chapter 3, we discover the introduction of man. And what I want to do is just kind of dive down and unpack a passage here here in, in Genesis chapter 3 that kinda explains how it all came about we all know the familiar story don't we of Adam and Eve God created the very first couple and put them in, in this beautiful setting and basically they had complete control of the environment they had a harmonious relationship with one another they had an intimate walk with God they had it made man was created in the very image of God and he's given an interesting job description Adam is given the unique responsibility to rule and subdue all of God's creation. And right along with that, he's given the moral capacity to choose. He's given a choice. In fact, that's really a central part of what it means to be created in God's image. Basically, we are created in God's image to rule and to choose. To rule and to choose. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we find God's very first commandment. His very first command, and it's a positive one, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, God says, enjoy, live it up, have a great and wonderful time. But then in chapter two, we discover God's second commandment, and it's a warning. In verse 15, then the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you shall surely die. Now why would God put a tree like that smack dab in the middle of the garden? I mean, if you put a sign on a park bench that said, wet paint, do not touch, what's going to happen? It's going to get touched. And so what is God doing? (laughs) Is he setting them up for failure? Not at all. In fact, the tree was planted there specifically in order to give Adam and Eve the dignity, the moral responsibility, to choose. In other words, it's really a test of their faith and obedience. Will they still trust God? Will they still obey Him if given this choice? You see, unless you have an alternative, how in the world can you exercise your moral capacity to choose, right? And so God puts in the garden only one restriction. Don't mess with the tree. (laughs) Real simple. It's interesting in verse 25, it says that the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now, why point that out? When the Bible says that they were naked and unashamed, uh, it was more than just physical. In fact, the text here implies that there was an emotional, relational nakedness and, and unashamedness. There was, there was no intimacy barrier between Adam and Eve. They had no bad memories from their exes, no bad memories from high school. They had no bad lessons that they learned from their parents while they were growing up. We find here total innocence, I mean absolute transparency, open communication with God and with one another. They had it made. The first and only perfect marriage in all of history. Why? Because there was no bad past, no sin, no hang-ups. Remember the story I've told before about one day when Adam was feeling a little bit insecure and he went up to Eve and he said, Eve, do you love me? I mean, really, do you really love me? And she looked at him and she shrugged her shoulders and she said, who else? Well, everything was going great in the garden. And when Adam and Eve started out, again, it was the only perfect marriage in all of human history. But then we come to chapter three. We discover the introduction of sin. And when they sinned, It ruined the whole thing. Sin and death entered the scene. It messed up the relationship and every single relationship since then. You see, in order to keep everything perfect, all Adam and Eve had to do was to keep that simple command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They violated that prohibition, and God said, if you do that, you're going to die. And of course, they disobeyed God and with a little help from their enemy, Satan, who came on the scene in the form of a snake. Kind of a strange story there. Eve listened to the, the, the serpent's tempting words, and she took uh, a bite of that forbidden fruit, and that she gave uh, a little to Adam for him to participate in this fruit-tasting venture. And, and so it started with Eve, but before we get too hard and come down hard on Eve, where was Adam? I mean, we assume that he was maybe off mowing the lawn or tinkering around in the garage or maybe he was doing something in the garden, but where was he? During this whole temptation scene between Eve and the serpent, where was Adam? He was standing there the whole time. Verse 6 implies he was there saying nothing and doing nothing. He was paralyzed and silent. He was evidently too afraid to to speak up or to take any action. And listen, man, we basically struggle with that even today. Uh, the, the, the complacency or the passivity of just basically not taking leadership in our marriage and in our homes. Well, that started with Adam. There he was the whole time listening and taking it in. And so Adam and Eve both blew it, and they both blew it big time. Take a look at verse, um, well, before we get into that, I remember somebody one time said that the problem in the garden wasn't really the apple in the tree, it was the pear on the ground. Um, as a result of their sin... The Bible tells us, sorry about that, the Bible tells us that there were four horrible consequences, four devastating consequences because of the sin. And first and foremost, the worst of all, is their relationship with God died. They immediately became separated from God. The open and that transparent and that intimate fellowship, that intimate friendship they had with God was, was lost. What did that look like? Well, verse uh, eight of chapter three tells us that that separation was graphically displayed when they hid themselves from the very presence of God there among the trees in the garden. And so now every single person down throughout history has that same tendency to run, to hide, and to avoid God. That's one of the key evidences of the sin nature that we have, we run from God, we hide. And then right along with that, the relationship with one another was broken. That intimacy that Adam and Eve had enjoyed was now shattered, it was ruined, and they could no longer stand in each other's presence, basically naked and unashamed. In fact, once they had sinned, they scrambled to cover themselves up and clothe themselves with fig leaves. And men, women, we have been covering ourselves up ever since, and I'm not talking about just about clothes. Right away, we see how Adam did two things here that every man and every woman has done down throughout history. Number one, we hide. And number two, we blame, I didn't do it, it's not my fault, it's her fault, it's his fault. That's again a second key evidence of our sin nature that we've had ever since the very beginning right here in Genesis chapter 3. We hide and we hurl, we hide and we blame. Their relationship with God died. Their uh, relationship with one another uh, was broken. And on top of that, thirdly, their control over creation was lost. Genesis 3.17 tells us that what was once under their rule, what was under their responsibility, has now become a source, a huge conflict of, of, of hard work and pain. The whole world is now broken, and we can't do a whole lot about it today. This world is broken. And then finally, as a result of their disobedience, their physical lives would end. The fall of Adam from innocence and fellowship with God sounded the death knell for himself, his mate, his descendants, and every single person down throughout history. In Romans five twelve, Paul tells us that it, through Adam's sin, death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, Adam did act like a, a representative of the human race for all of mankind, and more than that, we are all genetically, we're all spiritually connected down in the very inner recesses of our DNA. It's a part and parcel of who we are. We're all connected back to Adam. Thanks, Adam. (laughs) And more than that, he blew it. The tragic result is that sin has spread to every single human being down throughout history, except for one, Jesus Christ. So Adam so polluted this river of human life that anyone who drank from it became toxic with the same disease, the disease of sin, which has the same result, physical and spiritual death. And so from this point on, from the fall of Adam and on into history, we are all now plagued. Sin, depravity, and death now reign supreme. And if that isn't bad enough, Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And so we're still held accountable for the way in which we live our lives. We discover the very first judgment was on the curse. was the curse on the serpent. Look at verse 14. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. I want you to notice. God here curses the serpent, first as a creature, and then secondly, he curses Satan. Now, what exactly was this serpent Uh, this snake Uh, it talks it thinks and so it's obviously not one of your garden variety kind of snakes it was indwelt by satan himself and he used that snake to deceive eve there in the garden and also notice that god's curse now is on all snakes and from this point on they're cursed to move about on their bellies on the ground and eat dust now why did god curse all snakes i mean why do all snakes now have to suffer because of that very first encounter in the garden? It's a good question, we don't really know, but I'm convinced that it serves to basically as a a constant reminder to us as to the origin and the very source of sin. You see, man was not the originator. Man was not the original source of evil in this world. Satan was. USA Today did a, a poll a few years ago about the things that the people fear most. What do most people fear? Well, the top 10 were things like flying, rats, mice, needles, uh, getting shots, spiders, insects, being closed up in small spaces or heights. Near the top of the list was death. It wasn't number one, but up at the top was death. And even above death was the fear of public speaking. Now, if that's true, then at a funeral, you would rather be the person in the casket than the person doing the eulogy. I'm not sure if I buy that. But what I do find interesting is that the number one fear above everything else is the fear of snakes. More than half of those that were surveyed said snakes, number one, top, just like Indiana Jones, we all tend to hate snakes. Why is that? Well, there's something in the human psyche I think that is repulsed by snakes. Nobody thinks a snake is cute. Nobody, I don't think. But ever since Satan himself took on the form of a snake, many of us naturally associate snakes with evil with temptation. Every time you look at a snake, be reminded of where sin originated. It wasn't with man. It was with Satan. He is the ultimate source of all evil in this world. George MacDonald, in his book, Hope of the Gospel, points out evil is not human. It is the defect, the opposite of the human, but the suffering that follows is human. Suffering is for the sinner that he may be delivered from his sin, and for that we were indeed created. We are in desperate need of a Savior. God has graciously provided a remedy for our sin. In fact, I want you to notice that after the very first curse of judgment, God provides the first ray of hope right here in chapter 3. And what we have in verse 15 is actually the first gospel message. It's, first, it's the first ray of hope. It's the first good news right at the very beginning. God says, I will put enmity, that is hostility, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head, and you will bruise him on the heel. What does that mean? What is that saying? It's kind of a poetic way of declaring something very important. Here's the first reference, the first prophecy in all the Bible concerning the coming Messiah. The, the Savior, who is, who is the chosen one, who will come and deliver as the remedy Uh, and deliver us from our sins. In fact, God here is predicting in a poetic way three things about this coming Messiah. Three things right here in chapter 3. First of all, number one, someday there's going to be a hostile conflict between the Messiah and demonic forces. Verse 15, I will put enmity, that is hostility, between you, Satan, and this woman, and between your seed and her seed. You see, from this point on, the river really divides. Satan and his family, his seed, his offspring, are opposed and break off and split off from God and God's family and God's offspring and God's seed. And when we look at the, the parable of the tares in Matthew chapter 13, we discover that, that Satan has children, just like God has children. For example, Jesus tells the religious leaders in, in John eight forty four, you are of your father, the devil. <laughs> wow. Why? Because you do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of all lies. Right away, the next chapter, chapter 4 of Genesis, tells us how Cain killed his brother Abel. 1 John three twelve tells us that Cain literally Is of the evil one in other words he is a child of the devil he's an offspring of Satan in fact the entire Old Testament is really a conflict between these two seeds the seed or offspring of the woman are all those who follow serve love and obey God and it culminates with a woman named Mary who gives birth to the Messiah the seed or the offspring of the serpent includes demons and really anyone else who basically serves the kingdom of darkness, whether they know it or they don't know it. And so God himself says, I'm going to put enmity, I'm going to put a conflict here between good and evil, uh, down throughout history, a hostility between these two seeds. And that hostility will continue down throughout history until God ends the war by throwing Satan into the fiery pit of hell in Revelation chapter 20. But God here is also, interesting enough, he's predicting the Messiah's suffering and ultimate triumph over the evil one. Look at verse 15. He shall bruise you on the head, you will bruise him on the heel. What does that mean? What is that saying? It was a common experience in the Middle East, and I have this when I go uh, mountain biking down the canyon. Every now and then a snake will slither across the trail, but it was a common experience in the Middle East. If a man was walking down a trail, a snake would just slither across uh, his path, and what they typically would do is go up and crush the head of that snake with their heel. I'm sure they would do it very carefully and find out whether or not it was poisonous or not. But the picture we have here is of the wounding of Christ through Satan's hostility of leading him through the suffering and the death on the cross. Isaiah 55 tells us that our Savior was was bruised for our iniquity by his suffering and by his death. But you know a bruised heel... Uh, can be nursed and it can can heal eventually. You can get over a bruised heel. I've bruised my foot, I've bruised my heel. You get over it eventually, but a a crushed head, Uh, not so much. (laughs) It means certain death. It is in and through the birth, the life, the atonement, the resurrection, the promised return of Christ, that Satan's head is crushed. But thirdly, we have in this verse, just this one verse, right here at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the earliest hint of the uniqueness of the Messiah's birth. Her seed indicates the Messiah will be born of a woman. What we have here is the earliest hint of the incarnation, God and Abod. The virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is hinted at thousands of years before Christ comes on the scene. Now, notice here it says her seed, not his seed. How does that work? I mean, biologically, we know that in order for conception to take place, the seed of the sperm is delivered by the male. But in the miraculous conception of the Messiah, the seed was the woman's, after she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit of God. And so Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman, who will ultimately defeat the enemy. Thirty years after his birth, Jesus announced the coming of a new kingdom, in which God will reign over the hearts and lives of people, and this is the defining, decisive moment of all of history. His coming was a part of a cosmic plan of redemption in which every one of us, as fallen and broken creatures, basically are directly involved. His coming threatened to turn the world upside down, and so is it any wonder they wanted to crucify him. Why? Because he was a huge threat to the established order. There's a conflict there, a major conflict. It started with a promise back here in Genesis chapter 3. Chuck Colson liked to tell prisoners this. He said, Jesus was busted, betrayed by a snitch, sent to death row, utterly rejected. He was strip searched and then died on a cross between two thieves so that we could be free from the grip of Satan, sin, and death. The coming of Jesus Christ was the awe-inspiring signal that God himself had invaded planet Earth. And in that, he has established his church. That's you and I, God's people. We're not a, a political rule. We're not a cultural rule. It's all about how, we, how he's established a, a peaceful rule in the hearts and minds of those who would come to embrace and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we do that in the present historical moment. We grow as a church family until the day that Jesus comes back in clouds of glory. Looking forward to that. Praise the Lord. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, the son of God became a man to enable men to become the sons of God. God has done it all. That's the good news. God has done it all. The only thing left for you and for me is to believe. And so God wrapped up his son in swaddling clothes, presented him to the world, and said, this is my gift to you. But a gift is not a gift unless you take it. John one twelve. But as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become the children of God. A few months ago, I read a, the following online article: A winning lottery ticket was purchased at a New York City deli. It's worth twenty four million dollars, but only for one more week. Somebody bought the ticket on May twenty fifth, two thousand sixteen, a year over a year ago, at a grocery store in the Tribeca neighborhood, but the $24 million prize that the ticket won remains unclaimed nearly a year later. New York lottery officials are trying to get the owner of that winning ticket to step forward, claim the prize because lottery winners have one year from the drawing in which to claim their money. A lucky New Yorker has a $24 million lotto payday just waiting, but the winner has to act fast. Why? Because time is running out. One lottery official said, we urge New York lottery players, hey, check your pockets, check your glove box, look under the couch cushions. If you have this winning ticket, we look forward to meeting you and giving you your winnings. But no one claimed the prize by May 25th, and so the money was returned to the prize pool. Now, obviously, somebody didn't know they had the winning ticket, but even if they did, that knowledge is worthless. It's not worth a dime unless they turn it in and cash it in and receive the money. Listen, you may have heard the gospel a hundred times, up, down, backwards, and forwards. You know the gospel. You know the Genesis account. You know the go- the, 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 why Jesus came, why he suffered, why he died. You know all of that. But unless you act on it, a gift is not a gift unless you take it. Unless you act on it, that knowledge is not worth a dime. What do you have to do? Four things, real simple. Actually, three, A, B, C. First, A, admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you're a part of this broken human race. That you're in desperate need of a Savior. Admit that. A lot of people can't do that. They can't admit they're sinners. They think, "Well, I'm pretty good. I'm a swell person. I'll I'll get to heaven because uh, I helped a little lady cross the street a few times and I give to the church or whatever reason they have." You have to admit, first of all, that you're a sinner. That's the A. B, believe. Believe that Jesus Christ is who He claimed to be. That He died on a cross rose again from the dead. Believe that. And then thirdly, confess. Confess him, embrace him, receive him as your Lord and Savior. There's no better time than now. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today. Why? Because we don't have tomorrow. We don't have yesterday. All we have is now. The most important decision you and I will ever make. And it's all grounded in a problem that was spelled out way back here in Genesis chapter 3. Let's pray. Father God, Stir up our hearts. Father, help us to to be grounded in the knowledge of who you are and what you have done for us. And Father, we so often take this for granted. We just kind of blow through life and we don't think about what you have done for us and how it all started so many millennia ago. And yet we're suffering today the consequences, the repercussions of what took place. So, Father, I pray that today you would help us to, to embrace you fully, to uh, bask in your grace and to understand what you did for us on the cross. Lord, quicken our hearts, stir up a revival in our, our lives, Father. Help us to, to make a difference in the dark and dying world in which we live, a world that's in desperate need of a Savior. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts Help us to to, to be people of your word, to get in and to grow and to understand and hear your voice. Help us to be all that you've called us to be. May we go from this place more in love with Jesus, more committed to being like him, in thought, word, and deed. And so as the psalmist says, may the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart, always, always be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock. And Father, you are our redeemer. And we praise you through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and all God's children said, amen.